Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Jesus was on his way and a man ran up to him and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There are a lot of magazines and books out today about how to be successful, how to make it, wealth without risk, success in life, all kinds of emphasis on being successful by this world's standards. But what is success in the eyes of God? How does God judge success? What is his standard of measurement for success? And the question has to come, is this life all there is? What must I do to inherit eternal life? The story that we look at tonight is the very familiar story of the rich ruler. He comes before Jesus, although he has what seems to be everything going his way and realizes that he needs more. How you answer the question of success determines your philosophy of life. It determines the way that you live. It determines your choices and ultimately determines your destiny. What is success in the eyes of God? It's different than success in the eyes of this world. In uh, Southern California, there is a billboard on one of the major freeways, and all it says is, what do you want on your tombstone? What do you want on your tombstone? The truth is, you better decide now, because after you're dead, you can't change it. You and I have to determine what we are living our lives for, what our goals are, what our drives are, what motivates us, what gets us up in the morning, what makes us want to go on and live life and to be full and all that God desires us to be. So I want us to see about four things tonight. First of all, I want you to see the man's confession. Now, if you notice something about this man, we commonly call him the rich young ruler. Nowhere in Scripture does it call him, in the original language, the rich young ruler. We started doing that because he ran to Jesus, implying that only the young can run. I've seen some older people who can outrun the young, but he came to the right person. He came to Jesus. He came with the right question. What must I do to inherit eternal life. And he came with the right attitude. He knelt before Jesus. Something about Jesus caught this man's attention. It aroused his heart and awakened him in his spirit, and he knew that Jesus had something that he didn't have. And Jesus comes and says to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Now here's what I think Jesus was saying. I think he was saying if I am nothing more than good. 
I do not have the answer that you're looking for. I don't have the answer to life. If all I am is good, that's not enough. But if I am God, then I do have the answer to your question, and you have come to the right place, for I can tell you what you must do to find eternal life. Jesus is probing. probing. He is uh, seeking out, trying to find out how interested this ruler really is because Jesus understands that desperation and even seeking is not enough, that you and I have to move beyond that. But this man said, what must I do? He believed that eternal life was a possibility. He believed that eternal life was a reality. But there was an itch in his heart that his money could not scratch. Something was missing inside of him. Although on the outward appearances he would have had everything together, there was still a longing in his soul. He had given his life to the attaining of wealth, and yet he was still empty and wanting more. I think there's a good lesson there for the 90s. We are always in danger of leaning our ladder against the wrong wall. We have forgotten that you can have wealth without security and you can have social standing without position in heaven. Money can buy you food, but it cannot give you an appetite. Money can buy a bed, but it cannot furnish sleep. Money can buy medicine, but it cannot obtain for you health. Money can buy you a house, but it cannot make your house into a home. Money can buy a church pew, but it cannot buy you salvation. Money can buy a car, but it cannot get you to heaven. The rich ruler had to come to determine what it was he was looking for. And so Jesus probes him further in verse 19 and says, you know the commandments. And then he begins to go over a checklist of six of the last ten commandments. He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now I want you to notice that this rich ruler had decided he wanted eternal life. Now Jesus is going to push him further to see what he is willing to pay and what he's willing to give up to get it. And so in verse 20, the man responds and says, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. Here was a man who was obviously religious. He was outwardly obedient. Six of these last ten commandments he had kept. All the ones related to his relationship with man he had kept. But notice, Jesus did not start with him on thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart because he knew what his problem was. And so he comes to the man and he says, what have you done? You know the commandments. Now evaluate your life. And the young man says, I have kept all these things from my youth. Now you've got to commend him because he has avoided many of the traps of materialism. Money makes us go mad and lose our perspective and lose the proper outlook on life. And usually the more money we have, the more we are tempted to compromise and cut deals and the more we become susceptible to committing adultery and to stealing and to bearing false witness and to defrauding and not honoring those that have taught us how we are supposed to live. 
So you've got to admire the man. He's made a good first step. But I want you to see, secondly, the master's challenge. Verse 21, And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him, and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess, and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Richard Foster in his excellent book on money, sex, and power, says these words, Money is made for taking, barguing, manipulating, but not for giving. That is exactly why giving has such ability to defeat the power of money. What Jesus was saying in verse 21 when he said, You lack one thing, go sell all you possess and give it to the poor, he was saying is, I, You've got something that you possess, but actually it possesses you. And you need to give it away. You need to let go of it. Jesus knew the potential of this man. He knew what he could become if he got his money in perspective. That which had possessed him... And so he lays out for him the price that needs to be paid. In reality, the degree that a man desires God is measured by how much he's willing to give up to follow God. Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The master's challenge is that he go and give up all he had, and give it to the poor. Now, whether this was a challenge of Jesus, of attitude or action, we don't know. But we know that Jesus hit a raw nerve in this man's life. In Luke chapter 14, verse 33, it says, No one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Jesus said to this man, one thing you lack. It's interesting because he uses the same word that Paul uses in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned and lack the glory of God. He ties these same two words together and Jesus puts his finger on the problem, the thing that was keeping this rich ruler from having eternal life. He found his Achilles heel. He found his sore spot. He hit that open nerve, and he said to the man, if you want eternal life, you must be converted from money to the master. You must have a change of heart. Now, I discovered something interesting while I was studying this message over the last couple of weeks, and that is how often Jesus speaks of money in evangelistic settings. If you read through the Scriptures, you will find very many times that Jesus Christ uses the illustration of money to deal with people about their eternal salvation. Now, that is absolutely different from the way we approach it in church today. We say in church today, which is unbiblical, by the way, we say, get a person saved and then let's teach them about biblical stewardship. The Word says, tell them about biblical stewardship because if they won't be biblical stewards, they won't give their life to Jesus, they won't give their money, they won't give their life, and they won't be saved. You see, a lot of people get into the kingdom, or they think they do, who have never dealt with the issues that Jesus says we must deal with. Jesus comes and He says, you can't love God and mammon. 
You're going to serve one or the other. I wonder how many times evangelists have done citywide crusades and preached on a text, you can't be my disciple who doesn't give up all his possessions. I guarantee you there was no aisle parade that night. People didn't come flocking that night because that hits us in our culture and in our society right where we live. What do you mean give up all that we have? I think he means that salvation is more than answering yes to a few questions and saying a few sentences in a prayer. That it is giving all that we have. Why did Jesus confront people in this area of money? It is because money has every characteristic of a God. Money demands allegiance. Money promises power. Money demands your full attention and your devotion so that you can keep what you got and so that you can make more. Every characteristic that you find in God or in any deity that's worshipped by any group, you will find that characteristic lived out in money. The reason Jesus said so much about money is because he knew that one reason people don't come to God is because they would rather go to hell with their wallet than go to heaven and be poor. Jesus comes and says to this man, your wealth is your God. And if you want eternal life, you must dethrone money and enthrone God. Now what he's done to this man is he said this, it is not enough for you to kneel before me. It is not enough for you to call me good. It is not enough for you to keep the Ten Commandments. It is not enough for you to be sincere, for if you hold back an area of your life, you lose eternal life. That is a part of the gospel that we don't like, but it is a part that is true. What we hold back from God is what keeps us from knowing God what keeps us from possessing a personal relationship with God. And so that brings me to number three, and that is the man's collapse. Mark 10, 22. But at these words, his face fell, and he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. Now, here's what the principle is in Mark chapter 10, verse 22. The rich ruler was not willing to share what God had shared with him. He was not willing to share what God had shared with him. He did not own the property as much as the property owned him. He did not have bank accounts as much as his bank accounts had him. He was possessed by his money and he collapsed because he wanted his money and his property more than he wanted eternal life. I just can't give it up. Now, a couple of things that you and I need to realize, and I've already mentioned one of them. Materialism has every characteristic of a God. Materialism has every characteristic of a God. I know of no society that is more materialistic-minded than the American society of the 80s and 90s. We have become possessed by the things that we own or the things that we want to own. We will elect a politician if he promises to put more money in our pocket. 
It does not matter what his morals are. It does not matter what his values are. It does not matter what his stand on abortion is or his stand on homosexuality. If he tells the American people, I'll put more money in your pocket, they'll be foolish enough to elect him. And that, my friend, is a sign of people who have the God of materialism. We are going to sell our soul and sell our nation down the river because we have refused to deal with this thing that possesses us. Materialism has every characteristic of a God because we start trusting it and we think that money is the solution to every problem. If I just had more money, if I just had more things, and so we get in our cars and we ride around on the weekend on a Saturday afternoon and we ride around on a Sunday afternoon and we go through uh, the neighborhoods and out in the areas where the folks that have more than us live. You notice we never go to neighborhoods to ride around with people who have less than us. Have you ever noticed that? You don't go where people have less than you. You go where people have more than you. And you drive by and you roll the window down and say, Honey... I wish we had a front porch like that. Honey, I wish I had a car like that. Honey, I wish our kids had bicycles like that. I wish I could have landscaping like that. I wish I had a two-story house like that. I wish I could live there. I wish I could own that. And we are envious of people who have more than we do. But if we understood what Jesus is saying, we wouldn't feel that way because we would understand that success is not what you live in and what you drive. Success is who you are in Jesus Christ. It is the man's collapse that he fails to understand what true success is all about. Success is found in having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It is found in having your sins forgiven. It is found in being able to go to bed at night and know that your sins have been washed away by the blood of the Lamb. It is found in having fellowship with the redeemed. That's success. If you don't have but one shirt and one pair of pants, it's still success to know that you are a part of God's family. That's success. That's what God's trying to tell the man. But he went away sad. His face fell. His countenance just washed out, and he went away grieved. Secondly, affluence will destroy your faith if you are not careful. Now look at verse 23, 25, and 26. How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they, being the disciples, were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Now here's what we would do. <clears throat> that guy's face fell and he grieved and he turned around and walked away. Somebody would stand up and make a motion that we make an exception. Oh, preacher, do you know how much he could help our budget? I mean, even if he just gave a little... It'd be better than nothing. I mean, God's not going to get anything. If he just gave a little, let's just water down the standards a little bit. Let's compromise. Let's back up. Let's get him. In fact, when we get him, as soon as we get him, let's put him on the finance committee. Because he's rich, that means he knows how to handle money. He's smart. If he's made money for them, maybe he can make money for the church. Listen, my friend, you can be the richest man in the world, but if you're not filled with the Spirit, you don't know what to do with God's money. I would rather have a farmer with a first-grade education that knew God 
than have the richest man on the face of the earth trying to tell me how to run God's business. Because I'll trust a man filled with the Spirit more than I'll trust a man who's filled with stocks and bonds. You and I need to realize that affluence can destroy our faith if we're not careful. And so they come and they say, Lord, who can be saved? Now, why did they ask that question? Because money and wealth and affluence tend to destroy the childlike qualities of faith in our life. When we begin to put our faith in those things, we lose that tenderness and that childlikeness that God desires of us as believers. And there's three ways that that happens. First of all, affluence creates a concern for secondary things. Affluence creates a concern for secondary things. You see, when we get in a position where we've got a little or we've got a lot, the only difference between a little and a lot is how many zeros you put on the end of it. But when we get to the point where we've got a little or we've got a lot, we no longer worry, as most of this world worries, about having a roof over our head. We worry about what color carpet we're going to have and who we're going to get to do the interior decorating and which furniture store we're going to go to to update our furniture. You see, when you have affluence, you create concern over secondary values. One of the things that happens to us, we no longer worry about whether we're going to eat or not. Do you realize that most of us ate more at lunch today than all the people in the world will eat all this week? The average American, by the time he's 60 years of age, eats 30 tons of food. Diet sign-up is right outside this door. <laughs> you see, we're not worried about whether we're going to have any food. All we're worried about is what we're going to eat, how it's going to taste, and do they take American Express. You see, it gets us concerned about secondary things. I doubt very seriously if very many of us have gone to bed with Bosnia and Somalia on our minds in this past week, where 3,000 children are starving to death every day in this world. I doubt very seriously if we worried a bit about it while we were at Burger King for their new takeout dinner. You see, we get concerned about secondary things. And the topic of conversation becomes where we're going to eat. For most of the world, the topic of conversation is, do we have anything to eat? We get caught up in the secondary because we've got so much, and yet our hearts only have room for one all-embracing love. You can't have a divided heart and a divided mind and go where God wants you to go. Number two, affluence destroys teachability. Affluence destroys teachability because the issue of our life becomes control and power. When we get money and when we get things, we begin to think because we have money and we have things that we have power. And in a sense, we do. And when we get money, we think that because of our money, if somebody works for us, we can make them jump when we want them to jump and do what we want them to do, or we can keep them from having money. And so it destroys teachability. It makes us arrogant. It makes us indifferent to people. It makes us callous to God. 
I like what John Wesley said. He said, gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Thirdly, affluence enslaves you to affluence. Affluence enslaves you to affluence. You know what the most addictive drug in America is? Money. It's money. Because we get it and we just want a little bit more. Oh, if I could just have a little bit more. If I could just get a little bit more. Could I suggest to you three statements that you ought to write over everything you own? If you and I want to get a perspective and not be enslaved by our affluence, there are three things that we ought to stamp. Maybe we ought to get stamps made and give them out so that we could stamp it on the inside of our clothing and stamp it on the inside of our cars and stamp it on all our possessions. Three statements that ought to sum up what we have. Given by God, owned by God, available to God. Well, this is mine. No, it's not. It's been given by God. I finally own this. No, you don't. It's owned by God. And that means if it's given by God and it's owned by God, it's available to God for God to use it. For God to take it and use it however He wants to. If He tells you to give it away, you give it away. If there's anything that you and I cannot give away, we need to give it away. Because of the deceitfulness of riches. Now, does this mean what Jesus is saying to this man, that you have to sell everything you have and be poor to get eternal life? That's what it meant for this man. But Jesus knows every one of us, and He knows what it is in our life that we have trouble giving up. And whatever it is that comes between you and God is what God is telling you tonight you need to give up and let go of and lay on the altar. That is your Isaac that needs to be offered to God so that you can have eternal life. And if you have eternal life and there's something in the way, it is what you need to lay on the altar so you can enjoy eternal life. You can have eternal life and not enjoy it. You can have money and not enjoy it. You can have God and have a relationship with God and yet not experience abundant life as God said we could. Now, fourthly, there is the master's checkbook. And boy, I like this section right here. The health and wealth boys like this section too, but I like it for a different reason. Verse 28, Peter began to say, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. I've always wondered why Jesus didn't stop right there and I say, Now, Simon Peter, you hadn't left everything because I know that when I die, you're going to go back to your boat, so you hadn't left everything. Simon Peter wasn't telling the whole truth. Sounds like a Baptist, doesn't he? Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. No, you hadn't given up everything. We've left everything to follow you. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Now there is a phrase in there 
that bothers me. He says, you're going to get all of this in this age, in this life. You give up something for me, I'm going to give you all of these things in this life. Now, did Jesus really mean that? I think he did. I think what Jesus meant by that is don't count your chickens before they're hatched. Don't ever add up the summation sheet of your life until you get to the end. Because I'm not through with you until you get to the end. I think what the Lord is trying to say is that there are some of us who have given up a great deal for the gospel of Christ and we're going to be surprised at what we get back before this life is over. I do not think he's teaching the health and wealth philosophy there. I think what he's saying is, is that God has a holy standard of reward and merit. Now, turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 29 and 30. Hold your place in Mark 10, and turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29 and 30. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians seven twenty-nine. But this I say, brethren, the time has not been shortened, so that from now on those who now have wives should be as though they have none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, Jesus is to be our goal. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, those who weep as though they did not weep. He's saying, don't let your sorrows get you down. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. He's saying, don't let your joy get you down. Don't get focused on your joys. Don't let your troubles get you down. And don't let what you possess possess you, for the time is short, and the form of this world is passing away. When Jesus spoke his words in Mark chapter 10, he was speaking to people who were about to face immense persecution. The church was going to be scattered shortly after the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And they were going to lose families. These new believers would be rejected by their families. They would be isolated and cast out. But they would find in the church new fathers and new mothers and new brothers and new sisters. Physical family may have forsaken them and cast them aside because of their faith in Christ, but they were going to find new family in the family of faith. I have found these verses at the end of Mark chapter 10 to be very true. I think that God does promise houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms and along with persecutions in this life. Let me tell you why I know that. 
I know that because all over this country there are people who through my ministry have taken me in and treated me like their own. In every church, there have been people who have opened the doors of their home and opened the doors of their heart and treated me as if I were a member of their physical family. I can look back and name families like Don and Nancy Kynard and Howard and Margaret Cleaver and Charlie and Sharon Jackson and Ron and Kay Dunn and a whole lot of others who have said, our house is your house. You can have whatever we've got. Who have opened their homes, who have wept with me, who have rejoiced with me, who have praised with me, who have cried with me, who have stood in the gap with me. I have found mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and children in this life that I would have never found outside of Jesus. I have found men in the ministry who are like brothers to me, who I have a closer relationship to than any physical relationship that I have outside of my wife and children. Men that I would go to the wall for and men who would go to the wall for me. They're brothers in the faith. They are people that I can count on. They are people who will stand by me and people that I can stand by. And we have a friendship that God has given us in the supernatural relationship of Jesus Christ. God has given us a relationship far beyond any physical relationship. It's thicker than blood because it's made possible by the blood of Jesus. That's how thick it is. And I've got children. I've got two of my own. But I've got a whole lot more. In 15 years of youth ministry, I have the privilege now of watching 75 young men and young women who surrendered to the ministry while I was in student ministry out serving churches across the states, overseas, in poor churches, in rich churches, in parachurch ministries, all spread out all over the country serving God who became my children in the faith because they surrendered to the ministry under my ministry. And so I have the joy of watching my spiritual children succeed, that if I had just taught them how to do business, they wouldn't have succeeded. God's been good to me. He's given me a hundredfold whatever I've given up for Him. He's given me family. He's given me friends. He's given me children. He's given me lands. I tell you, the desire of my life is one day to have a house on a mountain in Gatlinburg. And every time I ride by those houses and wish I could have one, I just remind myself that the meek are going to inherit the earth. And I want to go out and stick a sign in their front yard that says, you may have the title deed right now, bucko, but I'm going to get it in the new heaven and new earth. I mean, it says we're going to reign on earth for a thousand years. I figure I've got a thousand years to stake my claim on a mountain in Tennessee. That's pretty good. Some of you waiting for that beach home. You're going to go down there and claim it. Hey, God's been good to me. I couldn't complain if he never did another thing for me. God's been good to me. And you know, when you are running low and when you have needs, it is that family that you have found in Jesus 
Not your earthly family who doesn't understand your faith in Jesus Christ. It's the family that you have found in Jesus that God begins to lay on their heart and says, you need to pray for Michael, you need to pray for so-and-so. They're running a little low today, and you need to stand in the gap for them. I'm going to tell you something, folks. There's no physical relationship that will do that like the spiritual relationship does it. Paul said he would survive by the power of the Holy Spirit and the prayers of the saints. And that's how we get a lot more than we ever get up, give up. I don't care what you've given up for Jesus, my friend. God has given you more than you can measure back. The song says, the longer I serve Him, the sweeter it grows. And it does that because we get family and friends and children and lands in this life. Oh, we may not get the Rolexes and the cars, and we may not get what the health and wealth boys say, but I tell you, I would rather have the friendship that I have with people in Jesus than to get a million dollars from the health and wealth boys. Because a million dollars can't make me sleep better at night. But knowing that I have people who will stand with me no matter what makes me sleep better at night. And you know, the devil comes along with persecutions. But we're not bothered by that. You know why? Because as a Christian, I have nothing. And yet, I possess all things. And so the devil comes to me and he says, if you do this for me, I'll give you this. And I can say to the devil, you can't give me that. I've already got it. And then he comes to me and says, well, if you don't do this, I'll take this away from you. And I can say to him, you can't take it away from me. I don't own anything. It all belongs to God. So the devil can't give you anything, and he can't take anything away because we have nothing. And yet, we have everything. Let's read it again. Jesus said, I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. You know what success is? George Beverly Shea summed it up. When at an early age, he was offered a lucrative recording contract. And as the record company was on their way to his house to sign him to a deal to make him the Sinatra, <laughs> what a joke, uh, to make him the Sinatra, the star of his time, George Beverly Shea sat down at a piano in his mother's home in Chicago, Illinois, and wrote the words to the song, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have him than riches untold. That's what success is. Success is when the world can say, we'll give you the publisher's clearinghouse, and you can say, no, I've got something better. Success, success is when the world can say, if you'll buy this lottery ticket, all your problems will be over. And you can say, don't need it. Got all I need in Jesus.
I have everything. I possess nothing. And I'm totally satisfied. That's success. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.